Hey little buddies, it's Uncle Rick from the Uncle Rick Audio Book Club. Today's podcast, we are dealing with a personal hero of mine, Mr. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America. I think you're going to enjoy this. It's a chapter from The True Story of Benjamin Franklin, and it was written a long time ago. See, copyrighted 1898, you bet. I don't believe he ever wasted a moment. And yet he got as much fun out of life as the laziest lord in Europe. And he really kept himself young by his jokes, his songs, and his comradeship with the host of pleasant people who liked and loved him. For Benjamin Franklin was what we call a lovable man. On a sea voyage, he would study the velocity of the waves, observe the habits of crabs and waterfolk, or the seafowl that fluttered about the masts. On his walks, he would look into the life and doings of ants and insects. He worked out the course and coming of the northeast storms, and was, in fact, the first Old Probabilities, or American Weather Bureau. I never heard the Weather Bureau called Old Probabilities, but a lot I haven't heard. When he was setting up type in Philadelphia, you remember, he found time to start his pet debating society, the Junto, and his interest in this led him into many other plans for self-help and mutual improvement. He started a library, an academy, a hospital, and a philosophical society, all of which are in existence in Philadelphia to this day. He advanced the security and prosperity of the city by giving to it a police force, a fire department, a militia regiment, clean streets, pavements, sidewalks, and street crossings. He introduced to his countrymen the yellow willow, from which in no small measure so much of our willow and wicker work is made. The broom corn for our whisk and house brooms. Did you know that household brooms are made out of corn? Yep, they really are. Um, this broom corn they grow and then they cure the stalks and then they bind it onto handles and make brooms out of it. A lot of our brooms today, of course, are made out of plastic, but if you go to the store, you will still see what we call straw brooms or corn brooms. That's what we grew up with. And the idea of fertilizing farmland by powdering it with plaster of Paris the beginning of the vast fertilizing business that has so helped our farmers. When it was feared that so many wood fires, there was no such thing then known as coal, you see, would kill out or use up the forest trees, he studied out a new way to heat houses and invented an iron stove for burning wood and not wasting it. This stove, named from him the Franklin stove, was in use for many, many years. I know of some in use today. And this was really the beginning of the great stove manufacturing industry of America. The governor of Pennsylvania recognized the great value of this new idea and offered to get out a patent in Franklin's name so that the inventor could have the benefit and profit of its manufacture. But Franklin declined. I got that up for the benefit of the public, he said, and we who enjoy the advantages of the inventions of others should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of our own. And this we should do freely and generously. Wow, that's a different attitude, isn't it? So he gave the invention to his countrymen. But an iron manufacturer in London was not so generous or kind-hearted. He saw a chance to make money. 
So he set to work to copy and make the Franklin stove, took out a patent on it for himself, and made himself rich by its manufacture. The world, you see, is made up of all sorts of people. Some are like Franklin, and some are not. Eager to study into any new thing, Franklin was at once interested in the subject of electricity, that newly discovered force in nature, which about the year 1740 was attracting the attention of scientific men all over the world. It was not really a new discovery. Scarcely anything is really new, you know. But though learned men had known of the mysterious power from early times, no one could understand, explain, study, or capture it. Today, of course, it is scarcely even a wonder to you. It lights our streets and houses, draws you along without horses in a car or carriage, helps you to talk with people miles away, and sends all around and over the youth, the earth, the news of each day's happenings. We've only just begun to learn its value, its power, and its possibilities. But it has already become one of the greatest aids to man. And for this, the world is largely indebted to the enterprise, ingenuity, and daring of Benjamin Franklin. He tried all sorts of experiments. He ran all sorts of risks in order to find out more about it. You know how dangerous electricity is even now to those who understand it. In Franklin's day, to trifle with it was like playing with matches around a barrel of gunpowder or drumming on a keg of dynamite. Those are both rather risky, you know. But in the interest of science, Franklin was ready to take risks, and he did. He killed turkeys by electricity, let himself be knocked down by electric shocks simply to be able to know and explain how it felt. He made electric games played electric jokes, had his house ringing with electric bells, much to the distress of his good wife. He tried electricity on sick people. He tried it on well people. Until at last, by the experiment of the kite and the invention of lightning rods, he passed from playing with it to doing with it, and at once attracted the attention of men of science all over the world. You have read the kite story, I suppose. It was the way in which Franklin discovered that lightning was electricity. It was in the summer of 1752. Franklin had thought and studied over the question until he had come to believe that lightning was electricity, and he thought if he could only get up into a thundercloud, he could prove it. But there were no balloons handy. There was no high hill in the vicinity of Philadelphia. There was not a single church spire in all the town. If there had been anything of this sort, anything at all like the high buildings that are now plentiful in, Chicago, in uh, Philadelphia, started to say Chicago, I don't know why, he would have rigged up an elevated stand on it, run out his piece of sharpened wire, and waited for a low-sailing thundercloud to pass over it, and, if there were electricity in it, to send its fire down the pointed wire. That was his first idea of the lightning rod, you see. But there was no high point in Philadelphia, neither hill nor roof nor spire. So it became a case like the old saying, if the mountain won't come to Mohammed, Mohammed must go to the mountain. If the thunderclouds can't come down to me, said Franklin, I'll go up to the thunderclouds. And so he made his famous kite. He made the frame of two strips of cedar in the shape of a cross and covered this frame with a large thin silk handkerchief, for the thin silk, he knew, would stand the wind and rain, where paper would soak and tear, and cloth would be too heavy. He rigged to the kite a tail, loop, and string, and then fastened at the top of the upright stick of the cross a long piece of sharp pointed wire, sticking out a foot or more above the kite. To the end of the kite string he tied a piece of silk ribbon. 
This he held in his hand, and from the point where the silk ribbon was tied to the string, he hung a big door key. Then one day, when it looked as if a thunderstorm were certain to come up, he and his son William, a stout, manly young fellow of twenty or twenty-one, stole out of the house, carrying the kite, and hurried off into the open country outside town. They went as quietly as possible, for Franklin did not wish anyone to know of his experiment, and I suspect his son did not wish any of the girls to see him, for fear they would make fun of Billy Franklin and his father going off to fly a kite in a thunderstorm just like two foolish little boys. Very near to where stands today the vast city hall of splendid Philadelphia, they raised the kite. But to keep both himself and the silk ribbon dry, Franklin stood just inside the doorway of a big cow shed that stood nearby. Then they waited anxiously for the thundercloud. The kite flew fine and pulled hard, but the thunderclouds played off. One cloud passed over the kite, another covered it up. But there was no electricity in them. At last, just as the experimenter, got my tame tongue there just a minute, just as the experimenter was about to give it up, another black cloud swept across the silken kite. Suddenly, Franklin's brave heart gave a leap. The fibers on his hempen kite string, which he was watching so intently, began to move and rise, and at last stood out seven ways for Sunday, as my grandmother used to say, that is, in every way. He touched his knuckle to the hanging key. Zip! came a spark, tingling and stinging. Zip! Zip! came another and yet another as he knuckled the key again and again. I've proved it, Willie, he said triumphantly to his son. The wetter the kite string became, the heavier it was charged with electricity. And then, connecting the key with a sort of storage battery which they had brought, called a Leiden jar, they had all the electricity they needed, and both the father and the son took from it the most satisfying shock a philosopher could desire, one that nearly knocked them over. Then Franklin pulled in the silken kite and went back home through the rain, proud and triumphant, for he had proved his theory. He had brought lightning down from heaven. He had shown that he was right. Lightning was electricity. Now he could go to work, and by setting up his lightning rods, show people how to save both property and lives by putting into effect his own proverb that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Today, if you go to Philadelphia, you can see on the grounds of the great University of Pennsylvania, the school that Franklin founded, a splendid statue of Franklin and his kite. It is the very one that stood before the door of the beautiful and wonder-filled electricity building at the World's Columbian Exhibition of 1893 in Chicago a display of marvels and of magical assistance, which were largely due to the pluck and perseverance and brain of Benjamin Franklin in that Philadelphia cowshed 140 years before the great Chicago exposition. From the kite, Franklin quickly passed to the invention of the lightning rods, which he soon after made and set up on his own and other houses. They were sharply pointed iron rods, running from the roofs or highest points of the buildings to the ground. The electricity-filled clouds of a thunderstorm in passing over buildings thus protected would have their electricity drawn by these pointed rods and along the rods into the ground, thus saving the house from the frightful chance of being struck by lightning. These two experiments ending so successfully were written out by Franklin and soon found their way to all the other students of electricity and all the learned people of the world.
At once the reputation of Franklin as a philosopher and a man of science became very great. When he went to Boston on his post office business, Harvard College, which you remember he had so pitched into in his boyish newspaper piece, gave him what is called an honorary degree, making him Master of Arts for his work in behalf of science. Yale College in New Haven did the same thing. And when he went across the sea to England as the agent for Pennsylvania, he found that his fame had gone ahead of him. There the great University of St. Andrews in Scotland made him an LLD, Doctor of Laws, and the famous University of Oxford in England made him a DCL, Doctor of Civil Law. Thus he became Dr. Franklin. Thus, at fifty, Benjamin Franklin, the candlemaker's son, the runaway apprentice, the hungry, friendless printer, who had left school at ten, and his only education had been what he had taught himself, found himself renowned by the great schools, societies, and colleges of Europe and America, receiving from them honors that princes could not attain, but which really honored those who gave even more than it did him to receive them. The Boston boy was now the best-known American in all the world. But while he'd been so busy with hand and brain all these years, finding out strange new things and using his discoveries for the advancement of science and the good of mankind, Dr. Franklin had also been Teacher Franklin, educating his countrymen into the habits of economy, thoughtfulness, and self-help. In Poor Richard's Almanac, of which I have told you, among things to make folks laugh and things to make them think, among recipes and rules for health, were many wise and witty sayings which have become world famous, and which even the boys and girls of today use in their talk without ever thinking who it was that first said them. Along with these, too, Franklin wrote many other short, bright, sensible things, which, as they thought them over, opened the eyes of his fellow Americans to their rights as men and their privileges as citizens, home-builders, and money-getters. Their ancestors in the old world across the sea had been brought up to think that those in power were of better blood or nobler nature than themselves. <coughs> but in the free air of the new world, where they had to depend upon themselves, they began to think differently, especially as they read and pondered poor Richard's sayings. Worth makes the man, poor Richard told them. Knowledge is power. A stitch in time saves nine. Be industrious and free, be frugal and free, he said. And in his own rules of conduct, Franklin had thus asked for heaven's aid. Help me to be faithful to my country, careful for its good, valiant in its defense, and obedient to its laws. As he taught himself, so he taught others. And as poor Richard, or as Father Abraham, under both of which names he wrote his maxims and advice for his fellow Americans, he did all this so simply and yet so strongly that his words sank deep into the hearts of the people and educated them, even though they knew it not, in habits of economy, self-help, and independence. In hundreds of humble homes in America, as I've already told you, but two books were known or in daily use, the Bible and Poor Richard's Almanac. And from both, fathers and sons and mothers and daughters learned to depend upon God and upon themselves for help for strength, and for character. When you keep hearing things told and retold, what you thus hear becomes almost a part of yourself. So these wise and thrifty maxims of poor Richards, repeated by father or mother, would not be forgotten by the children. 
His words did more to make the people of America think for themselves and act for themselves when the time came than all the speeches of the orators. Indeed, one historical writer tells us that the battles of the American Revolution could not have been fought between 1775 and 1783 if Poor Richard's Almanac had not been published from 1732 to 1758. The people had been schooled by him to endurance, patience, manliness, economy, and helpfulness. So you see, while the colleges and the learned societies of Europe gave him at fifty his degree and title of Dr. Franklin, because he had found out and had done so much, the American people had long followed him, even without thinking that it was Franklin who was their leader, teacher, and guide. They'd even gone ahead of their leader, for while in the first years of his residence in England, Franklin advised loyalty to the king and submission to the decrees of Parliament, the people of America, as the pupils of the men who had set them to thinking, had passed beyond his caution. They were determined that neither king nor parliament should impose upon them by unjust laws or selfish decrees. They were becoming each day more independent, more self-reliant. Others followed where Franklin had led. With his words as a text, they talked to the people, and their arguments and a people, the people's, tang-tangled again, their arguments and appeals set alight the flame of liberty, which grew stronger and brighter as the masters in England became more obstinate and tyrannical. Then at last the flame burst into a mighty blaze that lighted the path of America to union, to independence, and to greatness, and gave to the world so bright a beacon light of liberty that kings and princes heeded the warning. And today, liberty and justice live in many lands because of America's story. And this advance of the people was largely due to the wisdom and the teachings of Benjamin Franklin, philosopher and patriot. Oh, I wish I had time to read to you a lot more about Dr. Franklin. He is one of the most interesting and important Persons in America's history, and I have been fascinated reading about him. Anyway, you can listen to the entire true story of Benjamin Franklin, which I just read you one chapter of, on the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. So, with that, I will say so long for now, little buddies. Look forward to reading to you again soon. And remember, put God first in your life, be a patriotic American, and honor your father and your mother. Parents. If your kids love today's visit with Uncle Rick, know that they will love the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. The Uncle Rick Audiobook Club allows access to dozens more stories, both from the Bible and history, to help your kids learn about godly character. Here's what one parent had to say about the Uncle Rick Book Club. Uncle Rick products are such a delight to our family. Our kiddos listen nightly to the Bible stories and fall asleep listening to God's word. These Bible audios are such a super reinforcement to what we as parents already teach our children. They provide our kids with a kind, gentle voice, pointing them to obey God and his word. Thank you. That was from Shelley. You can access the Uncle Rick Book Club at UncleRickAudios.com. See you there.